You know, um, as we consider the fact that the storm is headed this way, Hurricane Irma, and certainly we're praying for those who might be in the path of the storm. Um, I'm always reminded how hard it is for not only those of us who would be an amateur when it comes to forecasting the weather, and as hard as we may try, but it seems impossible for those who are the uh, professionals as uh, the predictions come out at a time like this. I remember seeing all the models were showing that this storm was probably going to make landfall at first in Savannah, and then it was going to, no, it's going to make landfall somewhere around Cape Canaveral. No, it's going to make landfall somewhere around Miami. Now there are people from West Florida driving back to Miami so that they can get away from the storm because it's going to make landfall somewhere around Naples. No, wait a minute, it's going to be in Tampa, St. Pete. It could miss that. It could hit somewhere around the Panhandle. And the bottom line is we don't know where this storm is going to hit. And when I think about that, I think about the fact that James chapter 1 tells us that we should be unwavering in our faith. And it goes on to say, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the winds. It means we're not supposed to be so fickle in our lives as these storms can be in trying to discern where they're headed. Someone should look at my life and your life if they know us if they hear us communicate and uh, interact with us through the course of our life, they should know exactly where we stand and what we believe and, and what we value and where we're going. And so that's why we've titled this series, Unwavering. Here are some things that we believe God has called us to be about as a church that I pray that you will embrace as a believer as a christ follower and that you would say we're going to be absolutely unwavering in these areas and so if you got your bibles let's look at the second one this morning and we're going to turn to psalm 34 let's stand as we open the word of god together psalm 34 as we talk about being unwavering and being united in worship united in worship and look with me. Uh, let's read these first three verses. And we'll look at the context of a few of the other verses in the passage in just a moment. But it says, I will bless the Lord or praise the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. And then verse 3, the one that I actually quoted when I proposed to Tina in the King James, it says, Oh, magnify. The word magnify means to declare the greatness of. So proclaim the greatness of the Lord with me. And then it says, let us exalt his name together. Father, we thank you for teaching us what worship is all about and using something you created for us to experience and encounter your presence, that it might do something in our lives, Lord. We're the ones who are in need of worshiping you because you're not lacking in anything. Lord, you are the one that we desire to encounter today. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You can be seated. The second core value, simply stated, that we've embraced as a church, remember the first biblical authority and doctrinal integrity, without a stand on the Bible, the rest of them really don't have anything uh, to provide a foundation. But last week we looked at, if we're going to be committed to biblical authority and doctrinal integrity, we've got to make it a personal issue, it's got to be a family issue, and then it's got to be something as a church that we're unwavering in. Our second core value says that we are committed to enthusiastic worship and celebration. It goes on to say that Trinity will continue to emphasize, this is part of our vision statement, the importance of the church gathered for the purpose of glorifying God and encountering his awesome presence through worship and, and praise. We have a vision for incorporating a variety of methods and styles. You saw uh, a unique method this morning as the children proclaimed reasons why they worship in order to engage our changing culture and all age groups without compromising biblical standards. We will seek to keep worship Christ-centered. Now, it's one thing to say that. It's one thing to say that the staff of a church or the leadership of the church has embraced that. It's a, another thing for the body of Christ to emulate that value and to demonstrate it with what we do as a gathered body of believers on a regular basis. I was reminded of something that Chuck Swindoll wrote back in 1989, long before uh, Rick Warren wrote his purpose-driven church. Swindoll was writing on those very same purposes in 89 in a book entitled Rise and Shine. And when he was dealing with the purpose of worship, he made this statement. I want you, I'm just quoting exactly from Swindoll here. He says, the Lord our God still seeks our worship. He still awaits the praise of his people the wondrous worship of his children. He still longs to inhabit our houses of worship. But, also, but alas, he says, worship is fast becoming a lost art, the missing jewel of this hurried and efficient generation. Wow, if we were hurried and efficient in 1989, what are we in 2017? He says, in many, and then he says, parenthetically, most churches... There are programs and activities, but so little worship. There are songs and anthems and musicals, but so little worship. There are announcements and readings and prayers, but so little worship. The meetings are regular, but dull and predictable. The events are held on time, led by well-meaning people, supported by folks who are faithful and dedicated, but that tiptoe expectancy and awe-inspiring delight mixed with a mysterious sense of fear of Almighty God says these things are missing. Before arguing with me, he said, stop and think, is your church experiencing true worship? And to answer that, I would have to ask you the question, are you experiencing personally true worship? He says, are you often near tears or on the edge of ecstasy or so lost in wonder and love and praise that you momentarily forget your whereabouts? Is there really a freedom in your soul, a groundswell of overwhelming, 
gratitude in your spirit, an intensity of prayer that blocks the non-essentials so completely you can concentrate without interruptive thoughts. He goes on to say, believe me, once you've tasted worship, the kind of worship that captures your heart and rivets your full attention on the living Lord, nothing less satisfies. And I would say a big amen to that. Do you experience that? Are you going through the motion on this Lord's Day? Are you checking having gone to church off your checklist? Or do you realize that we are the church of the living Christ and we have come that we might encounter him in authentic worship? As the psalmist begins to write this song of praise, he speaks of blessing the Lord. Now, God is not being blessed by us in the same way that he blesses us. In other words, God is not saying, I hope they worship me today so that I can draw some kind of strength. God has all strength and all power. He's not saying, I'm in need of their grace. I'm in need of their favor. God is God, and he is lacking nothing. It's that we are in need of blessing him and recognizing and declaring his greatness. We're the ones who have the need to bless him and worship him. Yet at the same time, God is a relational God. And God has sovereignly chosen to feel as we feel. We were created in his image. And so God is a God who experiences emotions. We read about the fact that Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. We read that the Holy Spirit is grieved by our sins. We see throughout scriptures, Old and the New Testament, where God expresses both anger and at other times delight and he delights in the worship and praise of his people so the psalmist says we need to be about blessing God blessing the Lord and he says I will do this at all times and so of course it's supposed to be something that is a lifestyle it's not just Sunday morning when we've gathered together that we say this is that compartment of my life this is the time in my week that I have set aside for worship. We are to worship God 24-7 with all that we are, all our being, all that we do is to be an act of worship to God. I get that, I understand that. And most of us understand that. But it also, out of the overflow of that, causes us to come together united in worship, we might call it corporate worship, but I like that word united. We're united in worship out of the overflow. And, and not only does our united worship overflow from our personal worship, the united worship often inspires and encourages and promotes a, a lifestyle of personal worship. And we'll see that as well here in the text. And so I just want to share with you three reasons this morning that we need to be united and, and unwavering in being united in our worship. And the first one is simply this. United worship provides a place for encountering Christ. <laughs> you can encounter Christ anywhere, but God has so desired on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, one of the beautiful things about Lord's Day worship is that it testifies to the fact of our, our Savior is a risen Lord, that all other gods, little g, in this world are dead, but there is one living God who rose again, 
the first day of the week, and it was such a powerful fact that the New Testament church, the early church, moved what had been a sacred, don't tamper with this day, Sabbath day, seventh day worship to the first day of the week because that's the day that our Lord rose from the grave. And so we come seeking a living Christ. We, we come desiring to encounter Christ. In verse 4 in Psalm 34, the psalmist says, I sought the Lord. And so he's speaking past tense. Before the experience of all these other truths in the passage, he says, I want you to know I was seeking the Lord. Now, it's not that God is hiding. And I know that when people use terms like seek and seeker and all that, there are always uh, my, my good reformed friends who will remind us, well, you didn't seek God. God sought you. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You were the one that was lost. He came to find you. And I, I get that and I understand that. But he also put within our hearts a desire to seek him, to, to experience him, to encounter his presence. In Jeremiah 29, 13, G, uh, the, the Lord said, seek me. And you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And Isaiah 55 and verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. And so when you have those opportunities to come into the presence of the living Christ, he goes, seek him out. Desire to be in his presence. And so this includes a desire to know him. In John chapter 4, when Jesus was speaking with a woman at the well about uh, true worship and, and sincere Worship true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. He points out to her that you're worshiping what you do not know. You don't understand what it is that you're doing. You don't understand what it is that you're worshiping. And we see that there's a, a seeking, a, a desire to, to, to find it and encounter and experience him in this psalm. And in verse 6, he says, I cried out. So it's an expression of desire. I want to encounter him. I want to see him. I want to know him. In verse 8, it says, in one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, I think it's a good one for you to witness to your friends with, but it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Try him. Seek him out. Experience him. Desire to know him and have a relationship with him. Why do we seek him out if he is already revealing himself to us? Because in that seeking it shows that we have a hunger and a thirst that we desire to be filled. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So we come seeking him out in worship because we want an encounter with the living God. And in the midst of that encounter, we want to experience something that comes from him, his word, his truth, his grace, his righteousness meets us in that encounter. We want to be often set free from guilt, and so it's in worship. What's amazing to me is that it will be that those guilt feelings that keep so many people from worship and from even worshiping when we're standing here in his presence. When we come together corporately and people are worshiping around us, we feel sometimes too guilty to even worship. And that's when we need to worship the most because it's in that context that that encounter is going to do something to deal with those feelings of guilt in our life. Sometimes we feel like, I know I've been there before, the, um, how many of you saw the movie, We Bought a Zoo? Some of the young people remember that. It was one of my favorite movies, We Bought a Zoo. And there's a scene where kind of the head zookeeper in there, he's, he's trying to fix a lock in the lion's cage. 
And as he's standing there in the lion's cage, remember that scene? He's, he's trying to fix it, and the lion is right behind him all of a sudden. And he turns around, and he's staring the lion in the face. And he says, you don't want me. He says, I- I'm full of scotch and bitterness and impure thoughts. <laughs> and the lion just kind of stands there. He finishes fixing the lock, and he carefully makes his way out of the cage. Sometimes when we're face-to-face with the lion of the tribe of Judah, when we're face-to-face with Jesus, we find ourselves not worshiping because we're saying, God, you don't want my worship. You, you, I'm full of the lust of the flesh. I'm full of the lust of the eyes. I'm full of the pride of life, all those things in the scriptures that, that you tell me that are wrong. And so rather than worshiping and encountering Christ the, and experiencing what we need in that encounter, we let it rob us from worship. There are people today that are saying, I'll go to the house of God, I'll worship together with God's people when I get everything right in my life, when I get some things in order. And the fact that we don't have things right in our life and the fact that things are not in order are the very reason we need to encounter Christ. And this morning, there might be some of you that are here and you're saying, I'm not going to worship if I lift a hand. Somebody might think, that I'm a hypocrite, somebody might stare. I'm just not worthy to sing out. I'm not worthy to lift my praises to God. It's the fact that we're not worthy that causes us to worship. The word worship means to ascribe worth. He is worthy. We're not worthy. And so a, a lifted hand, a shout of praise, is simply acknowledging that we're not worthy, and he is. And we have a need to encounter and have a life-changing encounter in his presence it's relational it's intimate it's why worship becomes expressive the bible is full of body language when it comes to worship and and you don't read a lot about people sitting like you're doing this morning in worship that's not part of the body language usually Uh, the psalms are full of dancing read psalm 149 and 150 that makes a baptist nervous doesn't it Dancing in the presence of the Lord. Now, most of us are afraid to do that because we learned some kind of uh, sensual, seductive version of dance and it wouldn't look so great in church. But there's dancing, there's singing, there's shouting. When people came before Jesus to worship him, they fell on their face. And so we need more time at the altar. We need more time on our face in the presence of of Christ but that was an act of worship there was clapping of hands and lifting of hands why because worship was relational in the communication I want to illustrate this I'm going to ask Tucker and Becky to come help me out this morning our newlyweds here at Trinity not as new as maybe Morgan and Jeff but just a few weeks longer right and so they were married this past spring happily married right absolutely you see the, see the body language, see the big smiles on their face, they're happy. And, but, but I want to get them to help me out with a couple of things. I mean, do you ever communicate with body language? Of course, all the time. All right. Uh, let's try a few things out. Um, Tucker, first, show us the confidence, without saying a word, the confidence that you would want to portray when y'all were dating, when y'all, or maybe you were just trying to get her attention early on. Just, what, what would that look like?
right. Y'all, y'all give him a hand. Good job there. All right. What, what about, um, what posture did you assume when you were proposing? All right. That's good. Some of you are drawing the analogy, right? Some of you are getting it. What about, um, and, and I was there, I saw a little bit of this exuberance, but the rejoicing after the I do's. What did that look like? <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Rejoicing, hand raising, dancing, celebration. Becky, do you ever get frustrated with Tucker? What does frustration look like? So sometimes that comes out in our worship if we're not careful. The psalmist was very real in his worship. Uh, but what about when it's all over, when somebody gets their way and you're kind of surrendered? All right. The embrace. One more before you guys sit down. What, what if one of you needs maybe a $20 bill or something that the other one has? What posture do you assume? Y'all give them a hand. Relationships have body language. They communicated so many things without having to say a word, and you knew what was happening. Does that happen in our worship? When we come before God, I try to imagine Tucker proposing and how nervous he must have been. Do we come before God with fear and trembling and get on a knee or our knees before him and know that he's going to meet us face to face? Do we come feeling guilty sometimes and we have to confess things and make things right and experience his holy embrace? Worship is a very expressive thing because we are encountering Christ. It's a relationship with the living Christ. And if we can be so expressive in our relationships with one another, I know there are some ladies sitting here going, man, my husband sits there like a bump on the log at home, too. He's just no different there than he is in church. If we're so expressive in our relationships with each other, how much more should we be? How free should we be? How uninhibited should we be in the house of God? Secondly, worship, united worship, fulfills our purpose in exalting Christ. It's not about you. I know the encounter is something that you're going to get something out of, no doubt about it. But it's ultimately about our purpose of exalting Christ. Man's chief end or primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we need to exalt him in order to be able to enjoy him. And so when we say, I I, I bless God, it means I recognize his greatness. But in verse 3 he says, magnify or praise or declare the greatness of Make a big deal about, that's what that verse is saying. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. To magnify meant make a big deal about this. 
In verse 2, he had said, I'm going to boast in the Lord. Now he's saying, I'm going to magnify him. I'm going to declare his greatness. In Psalm 69, in verse 30, the psalmist writes, I will praise him with song and magnify him. So even in our singing, we should be singing to make a big deal about who he is. So many times in what was called, especially in the 90s, the worship wars and the music wars in church, everybody was trying to make it all about us. And it should be all about magnifying him. In, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 1, Mary, who remember again and again, she would keep all these things to herself and ponder them in her heart. Nobody had personal, intimate worship like Mary. But remember when she got real public with it at Elizabeth's house and uh, John the Baptist had leaped for joy within the womb of Elizabeth and, and she realized she's pregnant and she's carrying the Messiah and she just kind of bursts out in song, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul declares the greatness of God. And just as a pregnant woman knew that she wasn't going to be able to hold this baby much longer, it was going to have to come forth, she also knew that this praise could not be held inside any longer. It was going to have to come out in song. And so she says, I will praise him. I will magnify him. And she begins to name his attributes and all the reasons that she would declare the greatness of God. Look at Psalm 150 with me. I think it's one of the neglected psalms when it comes to uh, inhibited worship. Psalm 150 says, Hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness. The attributes of God should be on the uh, on our lips at all times as we praise him. And then he says, here's how. Praise him with trumpet blast. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. I have to get Karis to bring her tambourine to church with her. Praise him with the flute and strings. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. That can't be in the Bible. Clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes, let everything that you can make noise with, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. United worship, as we gather together on the Lord's day, illustrates that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's risen from the grave, and that we just can't contain it anymore we've got to celebrate that we've got to make a big deal about it and we want the world to see it and we want the world to know it and that there's nothing more important than that on this day on the lord's day that we communicate week in and week out that there is just nothing more important than magnifying the greatness of the lord is that on your heart is that on your mind or is it still that checklist well i've got to say that i went to church and felt better about myself and my journey with god you know some things that happened on September the 23rd, 1995? I know people are predicting the Lord's going to come back September 23rd this year, but in 1995, I don't know if that was so predicted, but I had to look up some things that happened that I did not know happened. September 23rd, 1995, Ole Miss beat Georgia in football. I had no idea. I really didn't. I knew a week later we lost to Alabama, but I did not know that on September 23rd, 95, Ole Miss beat Georgia. Had not a clue. I did not know that the OJ Defense Council rested. 
Didn't know that. I knew that they rested at some point, but I didn't know that that's when it hit the papers. I didn't even know, and I should have known, I probably should have been praying about the situation, but I didn't know that a Somalian warlord released hostages, including two Americans that had been held captive for some time. I didn't know that Tanya Harding's boyfriend and bodyguard got released from jail. Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan. That ring a bell to anybody? Remember that? All right, somebody, you know who I'm talking about. I didn't know he got out on September 23rd, 1995. And I didn't even know. Now, remember, the Braves won the World Series in 95. But I didn't even know on September 23rd in the heat of that great season, toward the end, Steve Avery and the Atlanta Braves actually lost to the Montreal Expos. There's some young people going, who are the Montreal Expos? But they actually lost 5-2 to two that day. You, you know why I didn't? Those are things that normally I would have been concerned with. But on September 23rd, I was concerned with one thing. And that was being at the altar with Tina Perot, who would take on my last name and become Mrs. Robert L. Brown on September 23rd. I was so preoccupied with that encounter that none of the other things even mattered in the least bit. And my prayer is that my heart will be tuned that way toward the Lord Jesus Christ every Lord's day that all that's going on in the sports world, that all that's going on in the political world, that all that's going on in the world around us will just fade in comparison to my encounter with Christ because I want to worship him and I want to live out my calling and purpose in exalting Christ. I want my focus to be on the Lord. I want to worship him because of his attributes, who he is in and of himself in all of his glory regardless of what he does in my life. But I also want to worship him because of his actions as many of these young people held cards talking about what God had done for them personally because just as last week we said that we uh, value what we value because we believe what we believe and that leads us in our values to doing what we do, God does what he does because he is who he is. And when we understand and worship him because of his attributes, we begin to experience his activity in our life and so we worship him because of who he is and we worship him because of his activity and his work in our life we magnify the Lord and then ultimately he says let's do that let's magnify him together unwavering worship finally this morning church unwavering worship rekindles the power of encouragement in Christ we come here seeking him first but we come here together so the psalmist says oh magnify the Lord with me he says let's do this corporately let's do this united let's do this together oh magnify the lord with me let us exalt his name together got your bibles turn to hebrews chapter 10 i want you to see the context of a verse that preachers love to quote preachers man we really love verse 25 But look at the context. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness, 
to enter the sanctuary, speaking of the very presence of Christ, through the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain, through the veil. Remember the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place that represented the place that contained the presence and the power and the glory of Almighty God. That veil, when Jesus died on the cross, was torn from top to bottom as Phillips Craig and Dean sings, and mercy came running. The presence of God was made available. It says, we have this through the veil. We can encounter his presence. He says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, speaking of Jesus, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. I don't feel worthy, but the blood of Jesus makes me worthy. Then he says, let us hold on. This is the second let us. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Then a third time, and let us not let you, not let me, let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our meetings. In other words, not missing that Lord's Day worship and gathering as some habitually do, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Every Sunday being a Bethel, a house of God Sunday, an encounter in his presence. Something that you don't get in a deer stand. It's something you don't even get necessarily in a family devotion. There's something that body life, that the church coming together, the ecclesia, the called out and together ones. We can't replace the church united with any other thing. You know, there's something when I, when I speak to the men about uh, the importance of fatherhood in our men's Bible studies and in our men's fraternity studies, we talk about two types of absentee fathers. One is the dad who is physically absent. And, and I encourage these men, don't be one of those men. You be physically present in the life of your children. But there's another type of absentee father, and that's the emotionally absent. That's the dad who is not, he's there physically, but he's not there emotionally. He's not engaged. There's a TV show that was famous for about 15 years called American Idol. And a lot of people would be present and a lot of people would be engaged. I want to show you a picture, see if you recognize this fellow. Simon Cowell, right? He's there. He's hearing what everybody else is hearing. But he's given the look like he's at a Baptist church on a Sunday morning somewhere. I dare you to bless me. I, I dare you to say or do something that's going to touch me. I dare you to challenge me. And so many times we come to church rather than a worshiper seeking to encourage those around us. We come saying, I bet you're not going to bless me today. I'm probably not going to like the songs. I'm probably not going to like the music. I'm probably not going to be touched by the preaching. I just dare you to bless me. But when you come to be an encouragement, when you come to bless the Lord, and you say, with a whole heart I'm going to serve him, with a whole heart I'm going to bless him, and I'm going to be an encouragement to the other people around me, you'll be the one who leads blessed. 
You'll be the one who leaves encouraged. But if you come as a critic, if you come as a Simon Cowell with the scowl on your face, right? When you come with that look on your face, you'll miss out on what God's doing. You come with a critical spirit, you'll leave empty, you'll leave needy saying, why didn't the church meet my needs? You'll come possibly having drained even the people around you because of your emptiness. Look at Psalm 103 with me, and I, I want to ask Jeff to come as you find your way to Psalm 103. And I want us to close looking at this reminder, what an encounter does. Then I want to challenge you to respond in worship to the challenge the psalmist gives us. He says, my soul praised the Lord. King James says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless or praise his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, my soul, praise the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. What are his benefits? What are his blessings? Well, he forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You come this morning saying, I need sins forgiven. You come this morning saying, I need my youth renewed like the eagles. I need a healing touch from God. I need my life redeemed from this destructive path that I'm on. I need to experience his faithful love and com compassion. How do you do that? You just say, bless the Lord, oh my soul. All that is within me, I'm going to bless his holy name. Begin to bless his name and encounter his presence, and he'll do a remarkable thing in your life. Would you stand right now and let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, forgive us for so often just going through the motions of worship of getting up on a Sunday morning and putting on our church clothes or shouting at the kids, rushing to the car, being distracted by ball game scores, discouraged by things that don't matter. Lord, forgive us when we come into your house with low expectation of people rather than a high expectation of God Almighty. Lord, I ask you to forgive me as a pastor, sometimes being more concerned about how the sermon sounds or how the music sounds than how awesome and wonderful and beautiful you are. How glorious you are and how if any life is changed, it's not through great music or great preaching. Our drama, if a life is changed, is because the people of God encountered the living Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Forgive us when we try to manufacture that in the flesh. Help us to give it to you. Father, we love you. Help us to grow in that love. Help us as a church to grow in our understanding and experience of what true 
worship really is. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.